Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Luke's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 4, verses 14 through 30 this morning. And there are Bibles on the table in the back if you need one. Luke 4, 14 to 30. Um, question for you. Do you know anybody who hates Jesus? And I, I don't mean um, people who are hostile to the church or people who are hostile toward religion in general or God in general. I'm talking about people who really obviously they're hostile to Jesus. Do you know people who hate Jesus? Um, most people I know, even if they're not Christians, won't speak evil of Jesus openly. They wouldn't admit that they, they hate him. Right? But in this passage this morning, we see uh, in the very early stages of Jesus' ministry, just when he's just getting going, the, the people of his own village, the people that he grew up around, are enraged by him and uh, seek to kill him. He's just barely getting started, and they're ready to throw him off a cliff. So uh, what do you think that we're supposed to learn from that? It's a rhetorical question. I'm going to tell you what we're going to think about that. (laughs) We're supposed to learn something from the people's anger at Jesus. So uh, let's pray. We'll read the scripture and find out what that is. Father, uh, truly... We are here before you as the only one who can change our hearts to make us receptive to your word, to make us receptive to your son and your gospel and you. And so we ask for the help of your spirit who is able to do that, that you would use your word right now to soften our hearts, to transform and renew our minds, to save us from our sins if need be, and to transform us into the likeness of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, 
and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So most commentators uh, look at this passage, they think that <clears throat> this is where Jesus' ministry really begins, right? Um, preaching and performing miracles in Galilee, which is kind of the northern part of Israel, the border hinterlands that uh, there's a lot of, you know, Gentile interaction up there. So not, not really the heart of the center of Israel, right? But he's out there, he's in Galilee and uh, preaching and, and doing miracles. And most commentators, are, that's where his ministry starts. The stuff Luke recorded before this, uh, which we've looked at the last couple of weeks, according to most, is just kind of preliminary stuff, right? Um, but this is where the real action starts. But in recent weeks, we've looked uh, in our series on the life of Jesus Christ, we've looked at how his baptism, his anointing with the Holy Spirit, really inaugurates his ministry. It makes it possible for him to be our Savior. It makes it possible for him to live on our behalf because he was baptized into union with us to stand as our representative. And his time in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days really is the beginning of his victory over the forces of darkness and sin and death on our behalf. Right? So, um, so his ministry is already in full swing. His ministry of works, the things that he did, it's already in full swing. He is the perfect human who is righteous on behalf of the unrighteous he is our champion. He is our deliverer. And now, in our passage this morning, we see him starting to tell people about it, which is his preaching ministry, right? that aspect of his ministry where he proclaims the, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And it says, he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, this is Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the guy who was in charge of the service, sat down, which is the posture that the teacher would take. Uh, so he was invited to preach that morning. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to, to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, uh, real quick, in verse 19, what it says, uh, Isaiah says in, in chapter 61 of his prophet, prof, prophecy, which is verse 19 of our passage, it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's talking about the Jubilee, which we read about, uh, Brian read from Leviticus 25. Uh, it's the year of the Lord's favor is um, that year once every 49 years where there would be like a super Sabbath year, right? Where the, the reset button was hit on everything. All debts were forgiven. Um, people who had lost their family homes, uh, they had had to sell them to pay for life. <clears throat> the, the, um, the land that they had lost would be returned to them. If they'd had to sell themselves into slavery, they were set free. All of this coming with the blowing of the ram's horn, the shofar, which is actually the where we get the word jubilee from. Um, 
blowing of that horn on the Day of Atonement, right? The Day of Atonement, that one day a year where the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrificial lamb and put it on the altar for the forgiveness of the sins of all the people, right? This is a big day in the life of Israel on that day, once every 49 years, when sins are forgiven, everything's forgiven, and, and everyone is set free, right? And that's the year of the Lord's favor that's being talked about here. <clears throat> that sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, it's kind of hard to figure out how this could be so offensive to them that they would form a lynch mob and try to, try to kill Jesus, right? Doesn't it just sound like cheerful news to set everyone free and restore sight to the blind and the year of the Lord's favor? It's a year of celebration, of freedom. The Messiah, the one that the Jews had been waiting for, shows up in their church, which is what the synagogue was. It was the local, you didn't have to go to the temple every, every Sabbath day, right? You, uh, you go to the synagogue, it's your local community. And the Messiah shows up and says, I'm here. It's time to get started. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to help those who are less fortunate, right? There's going to be freedom. It's going to be awesome. Let's celebrate. But that's actually not exactly what he's saying. Um, and there are a couple of hints here that tell us that's not exactly what he's saying that it's probably easy for us to overlook. First, he's not talking about doing mercy ministries here. <clears throat> mercy ministries are great, right? Helping the poor. It's great, and he does a lot of that, right? He does plenty of that. We see it throughout the Gospels. He's feeding crowds. He's healing people. He's concerned for the physical well-being for the whole person. Um, but that's not what he's talking about. And when he reads from Isaiah 61, he's talking about proclaiming. That word shows up several times. Proclaiming good news, preaching liberty, which is not the most practical thing when it comes to helping those who are hungry. Those who are <clears throat> literally hungry, those who are prisoners, those who are blind, those who are uh, oppressed or, you know, people who are occupied by a foreign power. Words don't help those situations. <clears throat> Second, when he sits down to preach the sermon, he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In your hearing. He doesn't uh, say, I'm the guy. He doesn't say, I'm going to go out and preach this message. He says, I have just done what this scripture said I would do. I have just done it. Isaiah said that the poor would have good news preached to them, that the captives would have liberty proclaimed to them, that the blind would have recovery of sight proclaimed to them, that the year of Jubilee, that true freedom, would be proclaimed. And that just happened because you heard me said, and you are the poor and the prisoner and the blind and the oppressed. And you see what he's saying, right? It's not, I came to help those other poor, less fortunate souls who don't have their lives together. He's saying, you're the poor, less fortunate souls. You don't have your lives together. <clears throat> and he's saying that to people who thought they did have their lives together, right? Good religious Jews. Uh, who had built their lives on being good religious Jews. 
He says to them, of all people, you are spiritually bankrupt. You are morally bankrupt, like the poor, repulsive beggars in the city. And you need someone to settle your accounts for you and to provide for you. He says, you are enslaved to your own sins, to your own selfishness, like prisoners who are living in concentration camps, and you need someone to liberate you from yourself. You are totally clueless. You're pitiful, spiritually blind, just like people who have lost their eyesight, and you need your sight restored by someone who knows what he's doing, by someone who can actually see. You are oppressed by the devil just like people who live in a country that's occupied by a hostile foreign power and you need someone stronger than you, stronger than the devil, to deliver you from his power. And the good news is that the Day of Atonement has come. Blow the horns, pronounce all debts erased, set the prisoners free, release the slaves, and restore everyone to their rightful inheritance, he says. Jesus has come to give us grace upon grace, And it's exactly this message of grace that people cannot stand. It says in verse 22, All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And this is confusing. And it's because they were confused. It's as though they couldn't help but be stunned and captivated by his grace. But when the implications of his grace started to sink in, they hated his message. You mean to tell me that I'm spiritually poor, spiritually enslaved and blind and oppressed, that I need mercy? No, no, no. I've got my life together. I've put it together quite nicely, thank you very much. I'm a good parent. I'm a good contributing citizen in the community. I came here to synagogue. I do that every week. I give. Who does this guy think he is? Isn't he Joseph's son? And that is a uh, subtle hint at what they believe to be the illegitimacy of his birth. I mean, basically, technically, they're sneering, saying, this guy's a bastard. That's what they're saying. So they were casting about for ways to dismiss him Because what he said stung them and they could not bear it. He was, as we sing sometimes, scorned by the ones he came to save. For talking about grace. For talking about grace. They didn't get upset because of a misunderstanding, right? They were upset because they understood exactly what he was saying. And grace is utterly offensive to people who are self-reliant, to people who are self-righteous. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French mathematician and philosopher and a whole lot of other things. But um, he said, in his Pensees, he says that uh, there are only two kinds of men, the righteous who think they are sinners and the sinners who think they're righteous. And it's sinners who think they are righteous who form lynch mobs. There's self-righteousness inside of all of us. We, we don't want to be lumped in with those people who can't get their lives together, the poor, disgusting, crass, pathetic, stinky, stupid, wicked people. 
who are just a drain on society's resources, who are all the, the real reason why this world's going to hell in a handbasket. We don't want to be lumped in with them. And you tell me that I'm like those people, that I'm just like those people, and I'm going to go on the offensive. Jesus attacks our self-righteousness. He attacks it because we need liberty from it. We need liberty from ourselves. We're all poor, captive, oppressed, and worst of all, I think, blind. We don't even know that stuff about ourselves. And that's why liberty needs to be proclaimed to us. It needs to be proclaimed to us because in the willful blindness of our own sin, we think we're already free. Jesus has this encounter with the Jews in uh, John chapter 8. He says, uh, well, says that he said to the Jews who had believed in him. Right? So, it's people who had believed in him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So back in our passage, Jesus proceeds to make things worse with the folks from his hometown. In verse 23, it says that he said to them, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the widows in Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a Gentile, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So throughout the Gospels, um, the Jews are shown to have extreme ethnocentricity. I think we all share that. I'm not bashing on them um, as a particular people group. We all have that uh, kind of ethnocentricity. But it's, it's clearly shown in the Gospels. And it it's true that God's gracious dealings with people in the Old Testament are almost entirely with them, almost entirely with Israel, but his intent in blessing them as a people explicitly was always to bless the whole world through them, right? It was never to be exclusive. But self-centered, self-righteous people can't stand things like that, that we wouldn't be the center of God's favor and the ones who truly deserve it um, we're always looking for ways to set ourselves apart from others. So when Jesus refers to the Gentile widow and to Naaman, it really rankles them. It's the, the story of the widows found in 1 Kings 17. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in, um, that we see in the Old Testament scriptures, uh, he predicted a drought in the land, three and a half years. That's a long time to go without water. Uh, and presumably that drought was a sign of judgment on the people of Israel, right, on God's people. And Elijah wasn't sent to help any of them, but he was sent out of that country to help a Gentile widow to care for her and for her son 
and the miraculous, gracious power of God was used to help those undeserving outsiders. And the story of Naaman is found in 2 Kings 5, pretty similar. Naaman was not just a Gentile. He was a commander of the invading army of Syria. And it says explicitly, the Lord had given him victory over Israel. He was Israel's oppressor. And, um, and the Lord had given him victory again, presumably, as a sign of judgment over his people, over Israel. And not only was Naaman an enemy Gentile conqueror, he was a leper. And, um, and when, when you're one of the favored people of God, and you're not a leper, you think that people like Naaman deserve God's righteous anger. They deserve God's righteous anger. But of all people, Naaman just kind of barely humbles himself a little bit, seeks God's help, and again, the miraculous, gracious power of God was used to help someone completely undeserving. And the point Jesus is making is you're no different from them. You're no different from these people. In God's sight, left to yourselves, in and of yourselves, you are broken sinners. You can't fix yourselves. You desperately need forgiveness and mercy. And when the people in the synagogue heard these things, they were all filled with wrath. And they rose up, and they drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. They were enraged to the point of murder by Jesus' gracious words. They didn't want grace. They thought they deserved better than that. I deserve God's favor. That's what's going on in the back of their minds all the time. It's just like the parable that Jesus tells of the vineyard laborers in Matthew 20. It's a, there's a landowner. He needs a lot of work done in his, on his property. And he goes out early in the morning and agrees uh, on, on wages, right? It's a denarius, like 100 bucks, right? It's a day's wages. Early in the morning, you work for me all day long, you get the denarius, you get the 100 bucks. And then he goes out again in the mid-morning, and he goes out again at noon, and he goes out again just before quitting time. And then they all come for their wages, and they all get $100. And, um, and the people who worked a full day's labor couldn't stand to see those slackers that barely worked getting the same thing they got because they earned it. It's the generosity of the landowner. It's the grace of the landowner. Who likes this concept of amazing grace? Who likes it? It's uh, those who know themselves to be sinners. Those who know that they are captive and poor and blind. Who is delighted to hear the sound of the horn at the proclamation of Jubilee at the year of the Lord's free favor? Who is delighted when that happens? It's those who know that they can never earn the Lord's favor. Those who know that they're slaves that need to be set free. When that horn blows, who hates to hear it? Who hates to hear that proclamation? It's responsible citizens who should have gotten ahead by their hard work. Jesus' grace 
infuriates self-righteous people, people who don't think that they're poor, captive, blind, people who don't, don't think that they need mercy, right? But we're all, every single one of us, poor, captive, and blind. So I'll ask you again what I asked at the beginning. Do you know anybody who hates Jesus? Do you know anybody who hates Jesus? And the answer should be, I do. It really should be. If you're going to be honest with yourself, if you're really engaging with the gospel, if you really understand what it means and and you're engaging with God and his grace, your answer should be, I hate Jesus. If you're not offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're not paying attention. All of you. Do you feel attacked by Jesus in your self-justification project? Do you feel attacked by him there? If you're paying attention, Jesus has to rankle you. You can't just have kind of a mushy, mindless sentimentalism about him and think he's just nicey-nice, right? That's not permissible. If you force me to acknowledge my utter spiritual poverty before God, that I would need the Son of God to come into the world and die for me, for my sins, you're forcing me to acknowledge that, I will hate you, I will kill you, because I have built my life on me. And you can't undermine that. The amazing thing is that Jesus wasn't killed by these remote townspeople in the middle of nowhere where nobody could see it or know it. It's sort of implied that uh, he miraculously escaped the lynch mob. The amazing thing is that he let the whole world kill him in their rage. He let the whole world kill him in their rage. In Jerusalem, it was the whole world. It was the Jews and the Romans. The Jews and the Gentiles together conspired to put him to death, and as they did that, they were acting on our behalf. We would have done the very same thing, and again, if you don't believe that about yourself, you're not paying attention to the gospel. But the gospel doesn't stop with just exposing your utter need, right? And just leaving you open to God's wrath. The gospel doesn't stop there. The gospel continues to shower you with his mercy. Because Jesus let himself be killed by the whole world. He let himself be killed. And in his suffering and death on the cross, he secured your freedom. The freedom that is proclaimed to you today. He bore your sins under God's wrath. He died to free you entirely from the penalty of your sins. He rose again from the dead in the power of of God's spirit to free you from the power of your sins. And one day he will return to set everything right to free you forever, even from the presence of your sins. I know it's hard to hear, but you need a deliverer. Let it be a joy to you to hear that in Jesus Christ you have a deliverer. This is now not just the year of the Lord's favor, it's the age of Jubilee. It's the age of the Lord's favor. It's an age that will never end. All debts forgiven. And this only comes as you throw yourself abjectly on the mercy of Jesus as is offered in the gospel when you let him not just attack but destroy 
your self-justification project. Everything that you have is absolutely an undeserved gift of God's grace, and there's no other way about it. And if you haven't thrown yourself on him for his mercy, you need to do that. And when you come to grips with that, when his mercy sinks deeper and deeper into your heart, your mind, your soul, little by little, you will become less likely to want to kill Jesus. Right? That part of you will die more and more. And uh, little by little, you'll actually become a little more like Jesus. You'll be able to look on the poor and the prisoners and the blind without disdain, without contempt, and you'll be able to see yourself in them as brothers and sisters. Jesus' mercy really can soften our hearts toward each other. You'll be able to celebrate the liberation of Christ with anyone from the heart through works of mercy through compassion, through justice. And when you come to grips with Jesus' mercy in your life, it'll make you better able to understand the hostility, the real hostility that exists in the hearts of those who, um, who don't yet know him, who haven't given themselves to him. Uh, others have hostility toward him and toward the gospel. And when your friends or when your family reject the gospel, you'll know exactly why. You'll know why, because the same thing exists in your heart still. And maybe you'll be able to communicate that to them in a, a winsome way that might surprise them, or maybe you'll just be better able to deal with it when they gnash their teeth at you and try to throw you off the cliff. There are only two kinds of men, the righteous who think they're sinners and the sinners who think they're righteous, which one are you? I'll give you a chance to answer that question. Let's stand and confess our faith together using the Heidelberg Catholic.